Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Also, check us out at uh, Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Uh, the past month and going into this coming month will be uh, a lot of uh, coverage of the Atlanta Film Festival that is not necessarily available on Sonic Cinema. Uh, including a lot of Q&As and uh, different uh, things throughout the festival. It's patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. We're continuing the Class of 1999 uh, movie series for the podcast with not only the biggest uh, box office hit of 1999, but also probably the most anticipated movie of our generation, or at least my generation, um, it is Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. And to discuss the film, I'm here to be. I'm here joined once again by Ronnie Haynes and Daniel Green. Thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us again. <laughs> <laughs> so I so when I when I watched the movie, I don't know about a month ago or so. It was a little over a month ago. To uh, I I probably did not need to watch it again because I've seen it a ridiculous amount of times over the years. Um, How many times have you seen in the theater? Including uh, seven seventeen. Oh my in, god! In theaters in 1999, <laughs> that is not an exaggeration. I it crossed. I it hit twenty when the 3D came out in 2012. Oh god. Um, yeah. I forgot about ne- that. Ne- needless to say, uh, Brian, this is actually an intervention. I yeah, don't know if you I, I'm, I'm not exactly. I mean, you know, there, there are worse movies that could have been my most watched movie in uh, theaters, but there, there are probably few that have aged this uh, poorly. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we're we're here to talk about that, and we're here, and it's. I know if if you listen to our uh, commentary that we did with David Miles, you'll you'll hear Ron and mine's uh, thought on, thoughts on the movies from two thousand three, two thousand four, whenever we record that. Um, but it's good that this is the first time we've really discussed the prequels in the times that we've talked about um, talked with uh, Daniel on the podcast. So. That's that's the big part that I'm really looking forward to uh, discussing in his experience in watching FanMess over the years and sort of getting his thoughts. Um, although I mean, talking about the films and film in general will be uh, pretty good for all three of us too, because I've certainly had uh, big sea changes in my personal feelings about the movie and sort of what I see in the movie now compared to. 20 years ago. Uh, so let's let's get started. Um, Daniel, uh, put us in the perspective of you as in your Star Wars fandom when Fan Mass came out. How old were you? You were well, you had to have been, what, 10? Uh, no, I would have been older. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I would have been 10, 11, something like that. Yeah. Um, no, no. Let's say I was born in 87, so like 12, 13, something right. like that. 12. And yeah. me and Brian were around twenty twenty one, right? Yeah, twenty. I was going on twenty two. So okay, yeah, yeah, because yeah, you're yeah you're a smidge older than I am, but yeah. 
but yeah, so my I think I was just like many Star Wars fans were, you know, you're excited because you finally got another movie. It's been, you know, a long, long time in the making at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was one of those geek nerds. I was collecting Star Wars already. And then, of course, uh, Kenner, I think, is who had the Star Wars rights at the time. It was Kenner or Hasbro. Kenner. Uh, I think it was still Kenner. Yeah. But I collected all the action figures, you know, the little four-inch action figures, every single one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually hanging in my office closet uh, <laughs> on pegs, every single one. Uh, I collected all the, the little micro-machine cars, the the flying ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I recently gave this to my son as bribes for sleeping in his bed about a year ago. So <laughs> uh, so the, the micro-machines and the, the toy ships he has and has destroyed at this point. But uh, a lot of the action figures I still have, they're right, hanging up in my closet. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was I was stoked. Um, I will say, uh, of course, we all know I'm a book reader. I read the book twice before I saw it in theaters. And I actually did not see in theaters until it hit the Dollar Theater. I saw it over on um, uh, what's the Dollar Theater over there on Roswell Road and Johnson's Ferry oh, okay. at the time. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, so that that was the first time I saw it. Uh, so it was way past its wow. viewing, just because De Niro is was tight in our house, so yeah. it wasn't easy to just take five kids or three kids and two adults to the movie. So okay, mm. so okay. I saw it twice in theaters um, in the original theatrical release, and then I saw it. Three times under 3D release uh, in 2012. I actually forgot all about that until you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but no, my thoughts at the time: fantastic movie, loved it. I don't, you know, there was obviously, you know, Jar Jar Binks was quite obnoxious, and I'm sure we'll get to him later on. Yeah. Uh, so there, there were moments at that age where yeah, you're like, yeah, this is not as cool. Uh, but overall, you know, really excited, loved it. Couldn't wait for the next one to come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like everybody says, it didn't age very well. Um, I'm still one of the few that uh, most people, most Star Wars fans, prefer three, two, one. Uh, actually, I prefer one, two, three. So uh, I'm sure we're going to discuss that in more detail. But the biggest thing was I like to see the youngness, the naiveness of uh, Anakin and how he was so uh, helpful, generous, giving, and mm-hmm. how he turned into he wanted everything, power and all, to save his people he loved. Um, also, I like how the politics in the movie uh, directly correlate with politics nowadays in terms <laughs> of how stuff doesn't ever get done. And yeah, um, so you know, just to to see, you know, kind of put a, a different type of perspective, you know, and, and things at that age, I didn't think about the politics and how it worked then. Now being mm-hmm. you know thirty two years old, you're like, wow, that's our politics now. So it's yeah. so seeing how corrupt the system is, you can see how the empire took over. You know, uh, you know, basically changed the republic into the empire. How it's so easy to manipulate to gain all that power, to just plant seeds of doubt and darkness throughout uh, the trilogies and even into the books that are in between and all. So, uh, right. so I, I, I enjoy it. I still enjoy it, you know, in terms of it's, for me, it's one, two, three. Uh, but yeah, it did not age well at all. It's, it's very mm-hmm. poorly written, directed, acted. Uh, you know, it's, it's sad when that Liam Neeson has not been in too many terrible movies that this is by far, in my books, his worst movie that he's been in. Um, the the saving grace I think was that uh, you know Ewan McGregor is actually not that bad considering how young he was and the role that he has as mm-hmm. Obi Wan. Yeah, what he's given um, yeah. to work with. Yeah, uh, I, and you know I'm sure we all disagree or all agree that Jake Lloyd was not the best choice. That there were many other Jake actors Lloyd. that had a yeah. A yeah better potential Anakin actor. So yeah, well I loved that. Um, I loved the. Uh, I really loved the. Behind the scenes documentary that came with the mm-hmm. with the DVD, yeah, the uh, beginning, the beginning, yep. yeah, and um, 
there's actually a really uh, there's actually a really interesting part where they're casting Anakin, mm-hmm. and it's down to a couple kids, and they're testing with Natalie Portman. Yeah, and you know it's it's clearly so, the other two kids in question are clearly so much better than Jake Lloyd, yeah. and you, you're just you're just you're just sitting there just watching the process mm-hmm. and watching watching this casting unfold and it's and I, I don't know like I don't know what anyone else was thinking when they when they saw that but I don't know that's just that's just something that sticks out in my mind is because uh, mm-hmm. is the is the documentary is is like is well that's when that's when that's right around when DVDs were starting to become what they were yeah. And, and I mean, and episode one was the uh, first of the Star Wars movies to hit DVD. It yeah, was one of the big, it was it was one of the big signifiers that DVD was here to stay because mm-hmm. basically, once Disney takes on a you know basically one Disney and Spielberg <clears throat> one and Star Wars and stuff like that once DVD had all those you know brands as. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah, we're going to commit to this. You know, it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is one of the most revealing things is that, yeah, there are a couple of other actors who clearly would have been better and more natural, but Jake Lloyd was chosen. And I mean, I think part of that might have been ended up being because of the fact that Jake Lloyd had a little bit more name recognition. I mean, even though Spil- even though Lucas was self-financing for the Lucasfilm, and I mean, Fox basically just, you know, distributed the movie. Um, I mean, I, I think him having, I think for him having as many names that people might have recognized was mm-hmm. probably, was probably a big thing. And, uh, I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I was, like you, Daniel. I mean, I was I was a lunatic when it came to uh, collecting episode one stuff. I wasn't a reader, so I didn't read the book. But like all the toys and stuff like that, yeah, we we. I told I told you I I I had the uh, I went out and I got a couple of the action figures when they because mm-hmm. I remember like some of the news stories talking about the uh, the midnight release at, at Toys R Us of yeah. the of the yeah. action figures and everything like that and. Um, mm-hmm. God help me! I bought the Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> well, in the thing and I was like, and you just thought, you just thought, like this is going to be such a neat character, yeah. and he's going to be so, and you know, mm-hmm. of course, we all. And I, you know, and I was deep into my soundtrack love at this point. So I mean, I as as was I, as was I, yeah. And uh, of course, the soundtrack with the infamous spoiler of yeah, Qui-Gon right. Qui-Gon's funeral. Because it's Qui Gon's funeral. It's like, oh gee, well, I guess he's dead. <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, and I I read as soon as the reviews became the embargo on reviews uh came out, like I basically read every major one from like Roger Ebert to Peter Travers from Rolling Stone, mm. Newsweek, Time, all that stuff. I I read them all because I wanted to know. It's weird because I wanted to know as much as possible about the movie going into it, mm. and it's like I wouldn't do that now. You know, even and even later in the the uh, summer when like Blair Witch Project and Eyes Wide Shut and other stuff came out, it's like I didn't necessarily want to know as much as possible. But like with Star Wars, and I think it was because of the fact that it was the first new movie in so long 
I wanted to know as much as I could. Um, as we all did. Yeah. And uh, but so let's let's bring it back to the movie. Um, and let's start with the crawl, uh, because I you know and trade disputes. Thing, I but the thing <laughs> is, I, the crawl still kind of gets me. I I still like I'm interested in what the crawl has to the story that the crawl sets up. I I think it's kind of an interesting idea and it's like even even 22 years old I'm like yeah this this is this is interesting. <laughs> I, I can get behind this. And because of the fact that was that, a, that was all of us. It was like eh, I don't hold on. It's like until the movie unfolds, that's when things start to fall apart. And it's like that crawl with J- the John Williams theme and all of that stuff. It's like, okay, I'm sold. You've got me. Fine. Let's get started. And and then when the movie starts, it's that's where things start to uh no, so it's, get, it's, 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 it's with the very first line delivery. It's like yeah. with the very first, the very first line exchange. You know, yeah, it's basically. like it's, it's when it, you start to <laughs> say, "Oh my God, what is going on here?" And I mean, the thing is, it's like uh, I think a lot of people. I think part of the problem is I I think one of the things that people, at least in our gener- mine and Ron's generation, and to a certain extent. Daniel's generation, but I think more with our generation especially, because we were in our 20s when it came out, um, and so we'd grown up with Star Wars, like, first generation growing up with Star Wars. Um, I, I think part of, part of the problem we had was, you know, the idea that was directed towards kids. And I mean, the thing is... Was it, though? I mean, that's, 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 I, a, that's I, another interesting... That's another. That's another debate. I. That's another point of discussion. That's that's been. It's like, was it? Was it? I think. Well, in and the, the, in the you know you know where I'm coming from though. I understand where you're coming from. I will say. I think. The was fact, it? Sorry. I think the fact that Anakin is a child in the movie, and Jar Jar is the character that he is in the movie, brings it into a place where it feels like it I don't think it that I don't feels like Lucas is trying to make a movie that resonates with kids. Well, I mean, even I, if the story is not necessarily something that would appeal to kids at all. Mm. Um part of the problem with that and part of the pro- the the big thing that really well, I mean, uh, New Hope. Uh, New Hope was. I mean, the, you you hear Lucas talk all the time about like, oh, yeah, I want I want New Hope to be for kids, you know. And like, he wanted he want he want uh, he wanted these. He was uh, he he was his his uh, focus was always young people, quote unquote, yeah. you know. And like, I'm just it, but it again, we were discussing this earlier, and we we kept saying, no, we need to save it for the podcast. We need to save yeah. it for the podcast. Like you know, like the fact that you know New Hope was kind of. More by, quote, you know, for lack of a better, committee, and 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 the, the prequels were all about George Lucas being surrounded by yes men. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, I'm coming yeah. from with this, yeah. Yeah, we, right? And and, we, and that that's where that's that's what affected the quality more so than anything. Well, and I I think in a big part of it, and even I, you know, even I would recognize it in 1999 is that part of the problem with. The prequels in general, but especially Phantom Menace, 
is the fact that it's written and directed by somebody who has not really been in either any of those positions in 20 years. Like, if he had been... Like, if the movie had come out in, like, the late 80s or so, if he had started this in, like, the late 80s, that might... I think that he might have been able to... You might have been able to see a stronger... Yeah, but he was waiting for the technology to catch up to him. He was waiting for the technology to catch up to the story. Yeah, I... Okay. I'm just like, I'm sorry, I've heard Lucas say that a million times. We all have. But I, I I think that's what's interesting, is he's waiting for technology to catch up to it. And for me, that's what I disliked as the prequels went on, is that... There was more and more CGI, so it was less and less physical. It did not age at less, all. You no, know, less and less <laughs> of actual interactions with your surroundings. It's more of there's a green screen back here. Yeah, there's Samuel L. Jackson, who's a great actor, but sucks in these trilo- yeah, uh, this trilogy. I, I, yeah, exactly. You know that can't act because there's he's not interacting with anything but a green screen. So it's it's interesting that he's waiting for this technology to get better, but then he wastes the technology because he uses exclusively the technology as opposed to the traditional props and sets. Right. So. And I mean, it and the whole trilogy looks like a freaking cutscene. We know this, but yeah. you know, it's yeah. yeah. I mean, and and the thing is, it's like when one of the notes I uh, one of the notes is you know I wrote down was I I felt like this movie could have been called Star Wars Episode One Exposition because it's exclusively exposition. It's not. I I don't feel like a. I don't feel like a story and one of the issues is I, I feel like this is all basically this is all prelude to more and something else happening later on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not really yeah. Why 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 was why was Revenge of the Sith the best prequel? It's because it's the one where where all the stuff that we've been waiting to happen actually happens. And also I think it boils down to the fact that by that point George had written and directed, you know, he had the pr- other two prequels under his belt, so he was a little bit more he was better equipped to be a director again. That doesn't and make that doesn't make Revenge of the Sith a good movie. It just makes it the best one. Right. That's the, the Be- better acting for sure. Yeah. Compared to Phantom Menace. Um, but to me, worse effects and it kind of what drove me away from the movie is you watch it and it's so fake looking. Not to say Phantom Menace isn't fake looking either, because those green hills are totally not green hills yeah. on Naboo. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it, it's d- all you know the original prequels. I think most Star Wars fans we like to ignore them. They're not really Star Wars. Yeah, they're we just don't there. talk about those. So <laughs> <laughs> just like some people don't talk about the new trilogy sequels and especially the uh, you know the Last Jedi. We won't yeah. mention any names or anything, Ronnie. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we spent two and a half hours on the last. You had to go there, Daniel. I, I did. <laughs> I mean, granted, we could have gone. He had to go there. An hour and a half more, but I I I. You know, we're, we're. I'm inclined. God to damn, table. Last Jedi. I'm, Sorry, I'm, what? I'm inclined to <laughs> table that discussion for what was before <laughs> that, the most controversial Star Wars movie. Yep. And I think I'm pretty. I I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying that it was, at the time, the most controversial Star Wars movie. Um, I. And it points to the struggle with making a prequel, where it's like, especially. I mean, yeah. Look at look at the Hobbit movies. Uh, you know, as a well, uh, and 
you know, to be fair, with the Hobbit movies, at least they were based on pre-existing texts. Mm-hmm. The problem with the Hobbit movies is that they, they were expanded from the text too much. Exactly, yeah. That was the biggest problem. Yeah. The story they had is a really good story, and the the book that Tolkien writes is a really good book. I mean, but I... But they turned one one book into three... Three movies. Three massive movies. Two at most. Mm-hmm. Um, or just one the, really the better, one, yeah. The better example, I think, as far as the fundamental problem with prequels is the Fantastic Beast movies that they're doing for Hobbit, the Harry Potter franchise. No, neither of them I've seen, so I'm I know, but I know, I know from discussing them with you that, yeah, like, you know, they're, they're like, not really missing much. Yeah, and supposedly a third one is on the way in two years, even though nobody really likes. Um, <laughs> but they're making money, and that's why but, they make them. But really, the second one didn't make money. But anyway, um, the inherent problem with prequels is that you're you're leading up to an event that we already know. You know that's that's kind of the problem. It's like you know, Rogue One was perfect because it was so self-contained. Like it's just about that one thing. So it's like you don't have to worry about anything else other than that one thing. And so mm-hmm. solo, you know, you have some leeway as far as, okay, well, it's like you're trying to develop the character of Han Solo to where he will eventually be the same per the person that you see in A New Hope. But you have some wiggle room in there to play with the character and to see how much he grows and where you take the character next. In that case, those are good prequels in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, I mean they're they're. I I think they're they're problematic. I, I mean, I mean yeah. I mean but, I mean I well and I think Rogue One is probably. I mean, they're, they're, I would they're, say Rogue One is stronger than any of the prequels. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I mean, like that's the thing. Like, no, Rogue One and Solo are yeah. entertaining and well made, and um, I mean, not that they're not they're not not problematic, yeah. but they're not perfect. But yeah, um, they're yeah they're oh yeah clearly better than yeah. The, the, I mean, I I feel like the biggest the the biggest problem with uh. The Star Wars prequels, and especially Sam Ness, is not only the fact that George Lucas was 20 years removed from his last time being behind the, in the director's chair, but also the fact that it felt like, while it's obvious he had a very clear endgame to the story, he also, it was, I, I feel like the first two parts of getting to that endgame in Revenge of the Sith are I I feel like they it feels like they were sort of pieced together by ideas without really being completely thought through. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. And I think that I think the problem there's with there's that there's is, very much there's very much a sense throughout all of those movies that you know Lucas was making it basically making it up as he went along. Yeah, and like yeah, yeah. I, I think if he sat down and wrote one, two, three, and then filmed one, two, three, kind of like mm-hmm. what they're doing with Avatar. Hopefully, you know, it turns out good. But you know, sitting down writing it all, you have the full story, you have what you want, you have the pieces together. Yeah, and then going back and filming it, I think that would have done a lot better. 
because you would have sat down and seen how terrible, how many useless scenes are in The Phantom Menace mm-hmm. that you don't need, um, and how many useless scenes are also in, you know, Attack of the Clones. Though, granted, the, the one thing I do like about Attack of the Clones is because we didn't talk, you know, the movie ends with the Clone Wars starting, yeah. per se, um, and then we have the fantastic cartoon, The Clone Wars, which mm-hmm. kind of answers so many questions and elaborates so much more that you never could have done in a movie, much less a trilogy of yeah. its own. So, mm. you know, it, it feels like, you know, a lot of one and two is just garbage material that we didn't need. You know, some of it was nice having the backstory, understanding how corrupt things were, but there's so many <laughs> scenes that were point like the pod racing scene. Like, what do we need a pod racing scene? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, okay, the starship got hit. They had to land on tattooing. Yeah. Republic <laughs> credits aren't accepted. So how do we swindle our way out well, of this and, one? And, you and know, the and thing is, it's like that... All of that, and you're absolutely right, and all of that points to some of my biggest issues with the movie, watching it again, and one of my issues, and some of my issues with the prequels in general. What Some of what my issues with the prequels in general have always been, and the main one for me is the fact that Anakin is a kid in Phantom Menace. And because of the fact that you know, you have Natalie Portman's character as Padme. I mean, she's obviously going to be the female lead in this trilogy. And thus, you know, it's implied that, you know, in two and three, as we see, she's going to be, you know, the mother of Luke and Leia. The fact that there's a, an age, the age difference that there is in Phantom Menace has always been rather uncomfortable because it's like if if you look at Padme after they leave even even when they're on Tatooine when she's dealing with when she's whenever she's with Anakin it feels very motherly it feels very maternal yeah yeah and be, she's basically she's almost his surrogate mother when he he's left when he's taken from his actual mother and then in the next episode they're supposed to be lovers it's like yeah yeah that's a big i mean i understand there's a time difference between them between the two movies but it's like yeah that's a bit creepy yeah i think the age gap thing so you know he was uh he was 10 if i'm not mistaken in the movie and she's 16 because she's 14 youngest she's 14 i believe she's Four- yeah i think, 14. I think she was 14. i'm pretty okay. sure yeah, she's I supposed she to be 14. 14 yeah yeah i think so, so and, i mean it's in age, it's not that different. It's just it's just that they're so young at that point. Because yeah. nowadays, you know, it's not unusual that you know the the wife can be older than the husband. That you know, it's not that uncommon anymore, like now. But at that age, that they're 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 literally both kids. Yeah. And but he's so much younger, quote unquote, feeling at that you know age. That I I feel like if it was one of those like she was eighteen or nineteen and he was like fourteen or fifteen, it may not have been as bad. Um, or even but if. Or even if he was like twelve, like yeah. and and part of, and part of the reason why him being a kid for me doesn't really work in this story is the fact that the idea of him being too old to be Frank. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like uh, in episode two we see the younglings. Yeah, and they're, they're not basically the same age as yeah. Anakin is in this one. Yeah, they're maybe a couple years well, younger. Wasn't the idea so. that like, um. Babies are like if they're uh, like it's kind of it's it's addressed a little bit in that scene with Shmi and and uh, yeah. Qui Gon yeah, is like it is. like um 
if babies are born under the quote unquote the, under the republic, yeah, and they're 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 the, identified as they're, more sensitive and yeah, they're, 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 they're yeah, yeah. I, from birth, from yeah. birth, yeah. yeah. That's the idea. So the younglings in episode two have been have been they've been training them since birth essentially. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like I understand in Empire Strikes Back, like why Yoda is hesitant to train Luke because of quote unquote being too old because he's you know he's early he's a young adult of Mm -hmm. course he is Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean that's. And even though they do explain it in that scene, and even though, yes, you understand in the context of that scene, it's like, I mean, is he, is that really the only reason that you're, you know, so hesitant to train him? And it's like, really, that's the best you could come up with, or that's the best that you want to try to admit to? I mean, they, they hint at the fact that it's like, in their questioning of Anakin in that scene, that's like, oh yeah, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this kid for a lot of different reasons that have to do with the prophecy, the chosen one prophecy, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like the you know when they confront Qui Gon again, and it's like, and Obi Wan is even saying, oh he's too old. It's like really is he is he is he really is he too old? Um. That's that's that that that's my that's always been kind of my biggest issue with uh, episode one in particular, and the fact that in in episode two it's like Padme and Anakin are supposed to be lovers, or mm. the, this love story is supposed to start between mm-hmm. them, and oh it my goddamn love in story, a very different way. That love story is still why episode two is my least favorite prequel, but. Yeah, it, it wasn't a natural for sure, but so so you know one of the things that always interests me too about Phantom Menace. Okay, we're good. Uh, okay, is that uh, you know so this prophecy of the chosen one, right? Okay, so let you know we look at the original trilogy. There's nothing that's ever mentioned about a prophecy of a chosen one, right. nothing like that, mm-hmm. right? And then all of a sudden, boom! Here in Episode One, there's this prophecy of the chosen one magically there, right? And so it's so weird, and then. If we think about it, so what the Jedi Knights were there for you know guardians of peace for a thousand generations, mm-hmm. and there's only two Sith, you know, according to you know Rule of Two by Bane, yeah. you know, there's only two Sith. So the prophecy of the Chosen One is never described ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, other Qui Gon's interpretation is that he's going to bring balance to the Force. So let's let's think about this for a moment. There's thousands of Jedi's for thousands of generations, right? And there's two Sith. So yeah. if we're bringing balance to the Force, does that mean we got to kill all these Jedi to level the playing field? So well, and, it's and never explained, like, what is the prophecy? What is this chosen well, see, one? that's one of the things that I like about Revenge of the Sith because of the fact that you have, like, Yoda and Mace Windu talking about the prophecy, and Yoda's the one questioning. It's like the prophecy could have been misread. Right. Meaning, like, well, are we sure we're interpreting this pro- prophecy? Because you're absolutely right. It's like, really, if you're going to bring balance, then the Jedi need to be almost extinguished right? in order to do that. And so really, you know, but I kind of under, you know, and the thing is ultimately I kind of understand why, to a certain extent, I understand why the prophecy is not necessarily brought up in the original trilogy. And I just, I, I think, think it's, I think it's because Lucas didn't even know at the time. He that didn't he, think about the fact that he was right. going to be able to make those movies at the time. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I have no doubt they wrote some basic structure for well, yeah, everything yeah. before that. Of course he did. But I don't think he saw about the fact that it's like, oh, well, it's like... And the the original trilogy doesn't lose anything for it not being mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's and that's one of the things about prequels. It's like prequels is going to fill in the blanks of... You know, all these things that happen in the original trilogy and give them more context, more meat on the bone. And, you know, part of the problem with these particular prequels is that some of the choices are not really that great. And, I mean, right. you know, and it's putting it, in, in that's putting it mildly to a certain extent. But at the same time, I mean, I don't have a problem with this being more politically minded than the original trilogy was. I I don't mind it being basically cuz I mean part of the thing that it's know, all an execution though. That's what yeah, that's that's the that's execution is the problem. Is is absolutely the problem and that's yeah. why it's it's so boring and it's mm-hmm. not interesting at all. I, I mean like and I'm going to I'm going to babble on until somebody Erupts me, but yeah, it's like yeah, no. Again, it's it's all in, it's all execution in, independent. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. Like that. That's why. That's why. I, that's why at least um, Force Awakens worked as well as it did, is because you know. I mean, yes, it's 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 a a lot of in many ways it's kind of a rehash of New Hope, but at the same time, it's like it was just. We were just so glad to see a movie, a Star Wars movie, done that well mm-hmm. after after so long after after the after the you know yeah the well, prequels. It was, also, it was also made by. I mean, it was also it was also made by filmmakers who like they cared. Not not or just, well yeah not not not, not to not say that George Lucas doesn't care. And I think to a certain extent he does he did by this point. I mean, but I also think there's a certain power. Album that just wanted the series done. Mm-hmm. I think he did legitimately want the franchise to be over, so maybe he could move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, to make those smaller, I mean, weirder, of, independent movies that, like he keeps talking about, that we, and, have, we haven't seen. One, one, one of the things I was, one, what I was getting at when when it came to Force Awakens is the biggest one of the biggest problems I have with. The prequel, the Phantom Menace in particular, is that it's very clearly the work of a filmmaker who hasn't made a film in 20 years. And J.J. Abrams, Lawrence Kasdan, all of them, they clearly have been working on a pretty regular clip. Mm-hmm. And it's like they have that confidence of writers and directors who they they basically... You know, they they know what they're doing. They they have a very clear vision of what they're mm-hmm. doing and what they what they know they need to do as filmmakers to make it work. Now there are other reasons why Fan Mass works or Force Awakens works better than the prequels. Part of it is the the way that they blend practical effects back into it more as opposed to overwhelming it with CGI. Mm-hmm. And but part of it is just just natural storytelling momentum. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that Lucas is lacking. Plus, with Abrams, you know you're going to get the emotion. You know you're going to get mm-hmm. the action. You know you're going to get the story. You know yeah. you're going to get all that, all those great elements that 
again, you know, execution wise, we just we didn't get with 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 the prequels, particularly Phantom Menace. Yeah, and one know. thing, and one thing I do want to talk about as far as the prequels um, is I when I watched it, um, you know, when I watched it for the first time, it's like it was it was the culmination of a really long day for me. So I had a hard time. I had a hard time staying awake, so I mean, I knew I was going to see it the next day. Also, so you saw you. You're, saw you it, it was it was midnight shows, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I knew I was also going to see it the next day, so it's like okay. So it, but I was still extremely tired. Um, the thing that struck me this this last time watching it was, um, and this is, and this this actually ties into a film that I. Just talked about for the podcast a few months ago, uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, um, which is one of the most notorious flops in movie history. Um, that is a three and a half hour movie. Uh, it has it's very episodic in the way it goes about its business. It ver- tells a very clear story. It tells a story a straightforward narrative, but it's very episodic in the way it goes up about its business. There's not really a scene that you would take out of the movie, but the problem is it doesn't necessarily know how to get in and out of scenes efficiently for a strong piece of storytelling. And when I was watching Fan Menace, I was struck by how much I feel the exact same way about this. I think it moves like there it's it moves from scene to scene the way it should mm-hmm. but there are sometimes where the scenes are a little too short there are some scenes where it's way too long it goes on way too long and lingers a little too much on things that it doesn't need to linger on but it doesn't really work as 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 much as it wants to work as a full-blown piece of storytelling it doesn't what um what did ben burt because ben burt edited us as well as did the, as, as, as well as the sound it. yeah what did hit what did ben, ben burt edited uh part of this do we know that's a good question um, i was gonna say i actually that's just now occurring to me yeah because like um, I, again i know i i, I mean, again that's something else that stands out to me in the documentary is Ben Burt discussing the editing with with Lucas, particularly towards yeah. the end? You know the the climax, the the the, the battle at the end. I mean, okay. Does anyone else remember? Okay. Um, For those of you at home, Brian's checking his IMDb on his iPhone. It's so it looks like so it looks like most of uh, the most of what um, Ben Burt had done as far as editing was the Adventures of Young Indiana. Okay. So he had worked with Lucas in that capacity as the editor. So yeah. uh, that that's basically his other big And Young Indiana Jones wasn't that great of a yeah. show to so begin basically with. Basically George Lewis got a yes sir, yes sir, yes, yes sir editor. Yeah. 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 In addition to Rick McCollum, who is basically yes man. Oh God, editor. the biggest um, yes man. I, I yeah just, yeah. Like you uh, watch again, you watch him and you you watch Rick McCollum in those in that, any of those behind the scenes. Yeah. Material and and any of the prequels and it's just like it's so it's. I mean you know. 
I mean, like I, I loved it. I loved his enthusiasm. I loved watching Rick McCallum's enthusiasm throughout throughout the making of the prequels. But yeah, it's so clear yeah. that like he's just again. I, I guess man, that's something else. I'm that's something I'm sure we're gonna touch on more. But yeah, it's yeah, it's so yeah. Go ahead. Brian. Yeah, I mean, I I think, and I hate calling. I hate the idea of calling Ben Bird a yes man because of the fact that his his sound design work is so essential to mm. the Star Wars saga in general. He goes back to the original. Well, that's well. What's interesting about the again, what's interesting about the behind the scenes material is Ben Burt's one of the people you see actually speaking up to Lucas about, hey, yeah, you, there, there's some problems here. Yeah. He's if you remember any any of that stuff, Ben Burt's one one of the few guys who's actually addressing these things with Lucas, addressing you know the the fact that like the 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 climax the the, the final battle is problematic because there are so many elements yeah. you know what i mean it well i mean and i i would counter with him though that it's like it's not that you think that the i i don't think that the 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 climax is problematic because there's too many elements because fact of the matter is it's basically a mirror of the three layers of Storytelling that Return of the Jedi return, yeah. at the end, yeah. But the problem with the climax is, well, the biggest problem with the climax, and I mean, I know we're jumping through, we haven't even really gotten into the story, but the the biggest problem with the climax for me, especially when it comes to the space stuff and on Naboo and all that stuff, so much of it is based on coincidence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's coincidence dressed up as fate, right? Like, you yeah. know, especially with Anakin getting into a spaceship, accidentally going into space and crash landing exactly in the place that he yeah. needs to be in front of, mm-hmm. that needs to be destroyed. Yeah, it's I'll like, try spinning. That's a good yeah, trick. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, it's like sure. pod racing. It's, it's sort of like <laughs> the will of the force. <laughs> Yeah, it's the will of the force. Nah, it's just lazy screenwriting. Yeah. Oh God! Like, uh, how many times do you jump in a plane and it's on autopilot? Yeah. Or you jump in a car and it's yeah. on cruise control. You have to put it on autopilot. You have to put it. In, <laughs> and how is autopilot automatically going to the mothership up there that you got to go fight and destroy? Yeah. Like, it, it's just yeah. It doesn't. There's so much stuff that doesn't make sense. No, or it, it, I have the high ground. Obi Wan did not have the high ground. He was about to fall in a pit, but he jumps over Darth Darth Maul. <laughs> And slices him in half. Darth Maul had an opportunity to slice him in half as he was jumping up. It's just like, <laughs> isn't that what Obi Wan yeah. did to Anakin in Return uh, Revenge of the Sith? Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's just well. And the thing, but the thing is, is like, at, it's it's one of the most frustrating things about it is that there are there are interesting things in this movie. I do. I will always believe that. I will always feel that way about this movie. There are interesting things about this movie. The problem is the execution. The problem mm-hmm. is the way they're put together. The best performance in this entire movie is Pernilla August as Shanice Skywalker. She is the one actor, and you know it's funny because I just watched her in another famous movie she's in, Igmar Bergman and Fanny and Alexander, and she is wonderful in this movie like she makes me believe every corny ass line of dialogue that george lucas gives her 
And like the scene, the best scene in this entire movie is when her and Anakin, it's the best acting Jake Lloyd does in the entire movie. When they're saying goodbye to one another before, you know, before he goes off with Qui-Gon. And the way John Williams scores that scene, everything about it, it's the most natural acting I feel like Jake Lloyd does in the movie. And it's, and Penelope August is wonderful in the movie. Like, she is fantastic in the movie. It's a shame that she only had one brief scene where she's dying in Attack of the Clones. I mean, it's kind of understandable that she only had one scene in Attack of the Clones, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, it's a shame because she does such good work in Phantom Menace. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there's so much... There's so much about this movie. I mean, uh, so much of it revolves around Anakin. As far as this idea of coincidence that's dressed up as fate. Like, oh, Qui-Gon and company happen to land on Tatooine who happen and happen to run into Anakin Skywalker mm. who happens to be the creator of C-3PO, which makes no sense whatsoever other than just pure fan service. Like, I mean, I guess part of it is supposed to show his <clears throat> technical brilliance as as a character mm. and the fact that he can do things, you know, that most other kids his age don't necessarily aren't necessarily capable of doing, but you already have pod racing to show that. Like I feel like if C three PO if C three PO had been in Coruscant as like a protocol droid helping, you know, with Senator Palpatine, I, I think that would have been much more interesting. You know, as opposed to Well and, and well the the stuff on Chorus the stuff on Coruscant is a whole other discussion. That's the you know, yeah. whether whether and whether or not that's actually any of that's an, a, even the least bit interesting. I mean I think, you know, and I think it's it should be more interesting than it is. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and well, yeah. The, that's the that's right. the whole movie in a nutshell, yeah, right? It, it should be more interesting than it, it is. That's the whole freaking movie in a nutshell. Yeah. But no, like, yeah, but yeah. I mean, Coruscant, the stuff on Coruscant is without probably the the the, the, mo- the most yeah. boring part of the movie, without question. I mean, what what did um, we're we're talking a little bit about Anakin Skywalker. What did what did everybody else think of the Padre? I mean, it was hyped up so much mm-hmm. going into the movie. I mean, if you're a f- familiar with films at all, I mean, you know it's basically lifted from the Harry Race of Ben Hur. Mm-hmm. Uh, how? What did the? How do you? How do you? What did you think of the Pod Race then, and how do you feel about it now? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, that's the thing. Again, I, yeah, I, it was, I remember being at the time, even though, even though the more I watched it, the more, again, the more problematic the movie became to me. The pod race at the time was still a highlight, Mm -hmm. you know, because it was just, it was, it was actually, it was, it was, it was interesting from a visual standpoint. It was interesting. An exciting, you know, sound. What you know, Ben, you know, Ben Berg goes to town with the with the sound and that. that and, and you know, I love, I love that. Like you know, there's, 
there's there's not there's not a lot of music you know it's it's yeah. it's, it's kind of like in in a way it's it's like a lot it's like a lot of the lightsaber battles that like you know they rely more so on sound mm-hmm. than they do the music and everything i thought that was you know i so yeah for for a lot of reasons the pod race at the time when the movie came out was was a highlight yeah you know um but then again like like so many other aspects of this movie through multiple viewings it just it, it does not age well at all. And again, I was watching, I was watching episode one this evening, before we got together, and uh, and the pod race came on, and I was, and I was just so not enthralled at all, you know. And it was just and, and I was like I was just sitting there like a like a deflated balloon, just like just not enthralled and not again like again yeah. I'm noticing all the elements that that I that I. Thought were interesting at first, you know, like yeah, like yeah, like the sound, the the no music, the uh, you know, like the, the visuals. I mean, that is that is that is one of the parts where some of the CGI is a little bit better used, I think. Yeah. But again, the, there's just so many not not an, there's not enough there's not enough in that sequence to 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 help the movie yeah. still, you know. So, so for me, it's one of those. So, you know, like I said already, I, I read the book twice before I ever saw the movie, and in the book, actually, I enjoyed it. Like, I loved it. It's very descriptive. Like, and you're imagining it because keep in mm-hmm. mind, I haven't seen the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I've seen some images and stuff like that. There was a lot of Time magazines and TV guys mm-hmm. back when we had those. Yeah. Like, there was images and all. So, you had an idea, but like, you're making it up as you're reading it in your mind. So you have like this whole elaborate sequence going on. You know, it's a desert planet, but there's all these caves and rock formations and everything you're you're avoiding and so to me actually with the first time i saw it, i was pretty let down um you know from the overall visual aspect actually mm-hmm. um you know the sound again the sound you know like ronnie said was fantastic the, the way he develops the different noises for the engines for each mm-hmm. uh, pod was yeah. fantastic it, it, and even even it just like the flying by and you know going past you kind of thing, it, it was just fantastic the whole way but just i felt like the whole visual aspect of it and you know going back to you know, we know how this trilogy is going to end because we know where the next trilogy begins. Like, well, we know how this pod racing is going to end. We know yeah. that Anakin is going to win. Yeah, we, we know. So it, it no drama. Of, it no took drama. away from it. But then the other thing that I, I look on and like, well, this doesn't make any sense at all is, so are you telling me that every single one of those pod racers were force sensitive? Because if Anakin can do it and it's so dangerous and so un, uncontrollable or in terms of how quick it is and how quick you have to be able to right. react – so are you telling me that all these people were like force sensitive people, or are we just <laughs> saying that Anakin is that much better than all these other people? Like, or, or you know, has to, excuse me, not that much better, but he has to have the force to be better than these regular people. Like, I don't right. know. I felt like there was a big misconnect, there, a disconnect there between he's a force user. You know, you have to have Jedi skills to fly pods. It's very fast or very mm-hmm. dangerous, as Qui Gon says. But here's all these other you know random characters that are doing it that aren't force sensitive, as far as we know, and. I don't, think, I don't think that was ever. The, I don't. I don't. I mean, that's an interesting. That's an interesting point. I don't think that was ever the, the intent. Yeah, I, don't, I, I. And I don't either. I think. I think. I think the fact. I think it's the fact that, like, the you know, it, this is this. Was, I think the idea was that this is primarily kind of like a thing that's done by you know professionals. Professionals. It's, you know. it's basically. I mean, let's face it. It's basically car racing. 
Yeah. That's yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Basically NASCAR. So so this goes back to the bad writing of George Lucas though, because Qui Gon says you know it's very fast, it's very dangerous. You have to have you know the enforce abilities to do it to you know to be. I think I think I think the idea is you have to get you have to be you have if you want if you want to do this if a human wants to do this. Jedi abilities to do it, I think, is specifically what he said. Yeah, but I think I think it's like I think the idea is if. If you want, if you want to be, if if you're a human and you want to do this, you just, yeah. you want to be a force as you want, and especially if you're a kid. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I can get yeah. the kid part of it, but yeah, it's you know, and I guess part of it's from reading books. You know, even in canon legends, you know, Han Solo sets up a racing on uh, one of the planets, and everybody races, humans and all. Now they're racing spaceships through space and obstacles, but. Yeah. Everybody's doing it from aliens to you know to humans, and they're not four senses. So it just I, again it goes back to again bad writing from George Lucas. That that was a line that Qui Gon didn't necessarily have to have, right? Um, that, mm. that didn't really serve a point, but it does change the entire context of the racing scene if you look at that line that Qui Gon says, mm-hmm. and you have to focus on he's here's a kid that is force sensitive that's doing it. So what are all these other creatures and characters? You know, it, yeah. so it, yeah, it mean, changed the dynamics dramatically. It's, that scene. It's one of those things where it's like George Lucas almost. Uh, like that. Uh, okay, I think we're yeah we're stable. Um, it it's almost like George Lucas uh, put himself into a narrative trap that he didn't intend himself to be in. By you know by that by Qui Gon's line and it's sort of the same thing with uh, Anakin being too young to be a Jedi and mm-hmm. all that be, to be trained at this point and all that stuff. It's like well, but you. So what does that mean? You know, for the Padres, what does that mean for the other, for for the other racers? You know, for Anakin, well, he's too young and yet you have the. You know, you have the younglings who are at least his age who are being trained, or younger, being trained. And it's like, again, he he establishes that in the mm. scene with Qui-Gon and Chewie. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, he, he, he was just, he didn't really, it, it's one of those moments where you kind of wish he had, he had, self-edited a little bit more or again had somebody to play off who bounced thing ideas off of like a Lawrence Kasdan or Gary Kurtz or Gary Kurtz but especially somebody in the ranks side yeah who, oh yeah where, who might have been able to go well can we figure out a way to make this a little bit more sustained I mean I that's one of the biggest things that Lawrence Kasdan brings to the original trilogy even jedi where it's like he's somebody to bounce ideas off of for lucas as opposed to just somebody who's going to say oh yeah that's 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 the idea yeah um yeah the the only prequel that had a co-writer was uh, attack of the clones right yeah, and, and it was some it was some guy that we did that again had worked on Young Indie Chronicles, I think. Yeah, and I think he had also he he'd also I think he'd also worked on I know I think he'd worked with Coppola at some point. So I mean mm. I I wanna say I don't think it was Apocalypse Now, but it may have been. But mm-hmm. I, I I think he worked with Coppola at some point. Um, so was somebody familiar with Lucas, 
But yeah, I mean, but part of the problem there is that, I mean, arguably, you know, we're we're talking about running issues with Sam Mess. Attack of the Clones has just as many in terms of the way it developed its story, especially the love story between Padme and Anakin. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's one of the things that is really it. It's one of those things where it's like you you just don't really you don't feel like he has strong grasp on how to write this after Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal feelings on the pod race is like I basically will echo what you guys said, where it's like it feels very inevitable. Like mm-hmm. it feels. Like I I I jokingly said it tonight while you were watching it, Ron. It's like, oh hey, the thing that we fully expected to happen happened. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I agree with you. The sound design. This is Ben Burt's finest hour mm-hmm. in in the movie. I mean, there are other great mm-hmm. sequences as far as the sound design, but that's the one that really mm-hmm. stands out. Um, because of the way he builds the engines and the pod racing sounds and the way the surround mix would work mm. is just fantastic um please tell me this was at least nominated for best sound design was it, it was it was nominated for visual effects sound and sound design mm. all three of which it lost to the matrix mm. and another so another another science fiction space jesus story which, which i chosen which one I, which i just discussed with uh somebody else for this series Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because of the fact that it's like I always, I always resented. I I mean I have my I've had my own issues with the Matrix for a long time, but I I always resented those wins against the Fan Menace. But thinking about it now, I still kind of feel like it Fan Menace probably should have won sound design yeah. or sound editing. But like especially visual effects, it's like yeah, I get why the Matrix. Yeah. I mm-hmm. get why the Matrix won. The overall sound mix, yeah, I get why the Matrix won. Now, yeah, it was it was pretty good. Um but I still have issues with the Matrix. Not as many We know, as Brian, we know. Not as many as I used to. I mean I, I like it more now than I used to. But um I arguably have more issues with Sam Menace now than I did with the Matrix then. Um, which I never expected to say 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, there, there's so much that we're, I will say before we, before we, uh, put to bed the discussion of the pod race, I do have to say my, one of my favorite moments of this movie will always remain the Sam people shooting. <laughs> target that, practice, that, so. that is. Yeah. That that's the one moment of humor that actually works for me in this mm-hmm. movie. It's it's genuinely funny and crazy, and mm-hmm. I know it's just a throwaway to get the sand people in here, but it's like, you know what? I kind of love that. And yeah, the way they're so proud of themselves yeah. <laughs> for shooting him. But uh, yeah, so that that's um. I like the I like the quick cut to the Jawas. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that all that stuff, all that random stuff is like you know. We we've mentioned we've mentioned John Williams a bit, uh, in terms of the pod race for the lack of music, uh, until the very end. This, I I will always go to bat with for this score as one of the best in the series. I I I think 
Anakin's theme is not used enough, I think, in the... Now, I mean, part of it is because of the fact that it evolves into a love theme, and then eventually you have the Imperial March, and Revenge of the Sith that comes into play. But Anakin's theme, which was one of the main themes that he introduced in this movie, is just... It has always been one of my favorite pieces from a Star Wars story, and uh, this this is this has always been one of my favorites. I love the way he uses uh, percussion in in the battle scenes and the pod race, and the way he builds tension in this, or attempts to build tension at least. Yeah, in this. I think John Williams does really well building tension as much as he can with what he's given. Yeah, I know. I, I uh, that's I that's what I'm saying. Well. Like, I like he's yeah. yeah I yeah. I mean, I mean, and I think he's also doing what I think he also does relatively well as far as building emotion as much as he can with what he's given. Um, I I love, you know, one of my favorite pieces of music has always in this score has always been. I talked about the scene with Ankin and me saying goodbye. That's that's a beautiful piece of music by uh, Williams, but one of my favorites has always been um, when they're in the Gungan City and, uh, you know, they're in front of Boss Ness uh, shortly after they meet Jar Jar, and, like, Boss Ness, they, Qui-Gon uses the Jedi mind trick to get Boss Ness to let him go, and Jar Jar, they get to take Jar Jar with them. And uh, that that piece of music is one of those things that doesn't necessarily stand. It it doesn't exactly stand out, but I feel like it's there's got it's got a lot going on, and it goes into, um, it goes into the underwater scenes where they end up going to Naboo. You have the two giant monster uh, attacks in. Stuff like that, which are silly and Coinc- stupid. Coincidence but, again? There's yeah. always a bigger fish. I'm like, really? <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it's it's one of those things where it's like Williams is just so good, and I I feel like there's there's especially I feel felt like with with his music, especially in the prequels, even even in the sequel trilogy, but especially in the prequels, it's like. He was really excited to be able to revisit this world again and expand on what he is he had done previously. Yeah, it's th- to me this is I would agree this is probably one of his finest, you know, of the Star Wars saga so far. Um, you know, we we get there's moments in the other movies where you know there, there's really good like I, in Attack of the Clones I like uh, Zam Weasley uh, the assassin yeah. piece. You know, he throws in. Uh, oh a guitar, always, you know, that's the no, first I've time. And, love um, I've always loved that. I've always loved that too. I mean, <laughs> I, I had that one on repeat like forever when it came out. And you know, Across the Stars was a great love yeah. piece as far as you know, mm-hmm. considering how bad the love story is. Like that, that piece was fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, the Phantom Menace, and, and I specifically like the deluxe edition, uh, the two disc set where it literally mm-hmm. has all the stuff. Um, you know, and Duel oh, the I Fates. I had that. I yeah. had that. Yeah. yeah. I think you know, to me, Duel the Fates, and I think most Star Wars <laughs> fans, Duel the Fates is a fantastic one. But I just think it's. The, the way that that piece builds the emotion, you know, because we, we, we know that Qui-Gon's going to die because we saw the, you know, the, the leak 
of the trailer or the of the title, you know, yeah. Qui Gon's funeral. But it's kind of the how he dies. The yeah. it's a really well choreographed, actually, you know, fight mm-hmm. sequence and sound and all. But it's really the the music that builds up that emotion of, you know, you know he's gonna die, but you you weren't expecting it the mm-hmm. way it happened, and yeah. it built up to it, and and uh, so it, it's and it's in Duel of the Fates, it's not just the the fight scene there. It it goes on throughout the whole the space battle, the the land battle in Naboo. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just well used and written for all three aspects, you know, the space battle and the land battle and the Jedi uh, Sith fighting. But yeah, it, it's it is to me, it's my favorite uh, soundtrack for sure of his. Um, from beginning to end, it's all all of it's good. There's not one piece yeah. in there that I don't like. Yeah. Where you know some of the other movies, yeah, there's pieces in there. Yeah, you didn't need that, or oh, that's not necessarily the best written, or it maybe could have done something better for this sequence. Mm-hmm. But I think beginning to end, this was definitely his finest hour so far that we have. And I actually I hope that you know the the rise of Skywalker, being that it's the last in the series and probably the last that John Williams yeah, will so probably it's write it's for gonna, it's any. Well, but no, just so like for any movie, because he's getting to the age now where he's yeah. he's already talking about retirement sort of thing. So it, this could very well be his last written piece of music for anything. Um, I kind of hope it out. He goes with, with a bang. I, maybe I think it'll work with Spielberg as long as it can. I I really think it'll work with Spielberg. As I long think so as too. Can. Yeah. Um. I mean, and the fact of the matter is, like <clears> the past twenty years, I mean, it's basically been Spielberg or Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it really. I mean, he's worked with other filmmakers, obviously, and a lot of them are filmmakers he had worked with previously. But um, for the most part, it has been basically Star Wars or Spielberg Mm -hmm. with him. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I I think he'll... Because that relationship with Spielberg has been so ongoing over the years. Uh, It is going to be interesting to see how many more scores he has left him because his health has been not great over the past few years. Um, yeah, he did have a health scare recently, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I mean, I know Spielberg's next film is going to be uh, West Side Story, so I mean, he's not going to be writing anything for that. Uh, they're still threatening us with Indiana Jones 5 so <laughs> in a couple of years, so maybe. Uh, but yeah, and now I mean, Silvestri did Ready Player One, so. But that was part of that was so part of that was because of the fact that um, John Williams had was doing uh, need him to do the Pope more mm-hmm. than uh, Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. So I think having Alan Silvestri on Ready Player One was a better choice anyway, given the narrative. I think mm-hmm. he, I think his his sensibilities were probably better towards than Spielberg than Williams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, are we getting off track? Well, we're. I mean, we're talking about John Williams. Okay, we're still talking about John Williams. Okay, John but Williams no, I mean, is it, Star Wars. Yeah, well, that's it, very it, true. It, you know, to but 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 to Daniel's point, it it's almost like John Williams is telling the story that George Lucas wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's obvious that John Williams knows the story that Lucas is trying to tell, and he's trying to tell it. Right, but. I I be and I, that's thing I'm with you guys and like thinking like Phantom Menace is a is a very underrated score yeah you know but clearly Williams deserves better than what he got you know oh yeah yeah no doubt I mean I mean I get yeah no I was I was I I think we all I think we all said I I know Brian did this and I know I did this we 
we bought the soundtrack the day it came out yeah. a couple weeks a, a couple weeks prior to the movie actually coming out and um you know i listened i that's right around when i was starting to get into soundtracks as well yeah like my fir- my very first one was Jurassic Park oh i had already been mad about so- soundtracks by this point like i was already well yeah well then I, I, I i was getting like as many soundtracks before the movie as i could that's how mm. crazy i was yeah um but uh, especially if it was a composer like John Williams, mm-hmm. I mean, you know. And no, I I very I have very vivid memories of of at least well yeah John Williams was like my my first exposure to this 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 interest of, of, of in soundtracks. You yeah. know, I have very vivid memories of sitting in the you know when I was really little, sitting in the tub listening to Star Wars yeah. on on a cassette tape or what I just. Anyway, um, so yeah, but and then and then then Jurassic Park came along, and I I bought that. I was like, oh, this is really this is really, yeah, powerful. And like I'm like this might be this could very this and it did it it developed into what what is my favorite kind of music now? Like yeah. you, and like that's what you and I bonded over big time yeah. when we first started yeah. really discussing film. Is like yeah, I was like yeah yeah oh my god the music oh my god the music yeah you love the music too oh, yeah. yeah so. Yeah. Anyway, um, um, but yeah, no, that's that's my that's my take on it is is uh, that's my hot take on on the uh, on the score. Anyway, is that yeah, it's one it's it is one of Williams' best. It's one of the best in the series, but it's it's just so bogged down by the movie that it's right. supporting that it's 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 hard not it's hard for that not to affect my my feelings on the overall thing. Yeah. So. Um. So, so getting away from the music, talking about other aspects of the movie, um, who would you guys say we learned the most? Who, who are the characters would you say that we learned the most about? As characters. Regardless of screen time, regardless of how strong the performance is. Watto. That's my, that's my, that's my answer. No, no, I I know because we were we you know we were we were we were watching yeah. this earlier. Yeah, and I said, I was like, I was basically like, I think Watto's my favorite character. And Why like, is I, he your favorite character? Because he's I don't know he's just he's some he's somehow to me the most nuanced. He's somehow to me the most the most interesting. Again, you you said regardless of screen time. I did, I did. And um, okay. and you know. Because I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna touch on something really quick. I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna try to dwell on it too much, Brian, because I know, like, I've, I've tried discussing, I've tried talking to you about the uh, Red Letter Media, yeah. uh, Mr. Plinkett reviews. Yes. Have you heard of these, Daniel? No, okay. No. These are these epic, two hour, like, like, son, like, the, the a guy, a guy, a, a personality online called Mr. Plinkett uh, reviews and breaks down. The uh, the Star Wars prequels in a ver- really interesting way, and he does it in the character of um, what's his name from Silence of the Lambs, uh, the killer in Silence yeah, of the Lambs. Lester. No, no, no. Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill. Here. No, I'm not kidding. I know it sounds it sounds ridiculous. It does sound really. Ridiculous. But it's so it's so interesting the way he does it. Okay. Okay. He's it's basically yeah. It's basically Buffalo Bill analyzing the 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 Star Wars prequels. And I've I've loved these. If Marv, if you're listening, I know Marv loves these. So 
Brian, don't 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 zone out on me. Don't don't zone out on me. I know you. I know you. I I, know. I watched five. I swear I watched like five minutes of one. The first one for fan mess. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get over the voice, and I know I couldn't watch any. I know you can. I know you can. That that's. But that, I'm just. But I'm saying again. I know. I know. I know. Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm just saying <clears throat> that one of the thing, one of the really interesting things this review does, the Mr. Plinkett review does, is he uh, interviews different people. On, I think on the street or something like that, and he's like, "What do you remember about you know what you know what can you tell me about Han Solo?" It's like, "Well, he's a rogue. He's a you know he's a rebel." Blah 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 blah. Right. And he goes, "Okay, good. What can you tell me about Qui Gon Jinn?" And it's like. It's like crickets. It's like, you know, it's like, um, he's stoic and he's a Jedi, I guess. And, you know, it's like, and yeah, you know, you, you, get, you, you, you get the point he's trying to make. And, and, and again, it's done in a really interesting way, but I'm, I'm not going to go, I, I, that's all I'm going to say about the Plinker reviews. Um, but yeah, I'm just saying like, Watto is kind of, again, Watto is the one that stands out to me the most in terms of like, you know, nuance in terms of like the way he's, the way he's done, you know, um, I, I, you guys are cringing over there. It's like, no, I mean, I'm because I wasn't quite sure that that was a surprising answer. To me. Yeah, that was a surprising answer. To me. Now that you've mentioned it, okay, that's a fair, that's a very fair point. Like, like again, like you just you look so you look at some of the you know his animation, like the yeah. like I mean again. A lot, a lot of still, yeah. A lot of the CGI does not hold up, but it's I, I don't know. Like again, you look at you look at the way you look at the work that's being done on Jar Jar versus the the work that's being done on Watto. There's there is some more nuance. Again, I'm using that word a lot. I know, but there is some more nuance with Watto. There's some more. There's some there. You can you can kind of see the wheels turning a little bit more with that character. I don't know. There's just something about there's just something. Behind the animation of that character, okay. that just and again the overall execution that just makes him, I think the most interesting character to me. Anyways, okay. go ahead. So for me, I would have uh, there's three characters, but two of them play together um, in terms of de- developing each other. Um, but the, I'd start with uh, Senator Palpatine. Um, mm-hmm. Just he, he's not he doesn't have a lot of airtime, right? He's he's very small. He has a right. small sequence at the beginning when the hologram gets cut out because the invasion's going on, mm-hmm. and then we don't meet him again until Coruscant. Um, but the small interaction we have with the little dialogue we have, you, know, you can see how very cunning and manipulative he is. Uh, yeah. You know, to kind of place the the seeds of doubt in Padme's ear mm-hmm. about you know now this is where you'll see you know th- who has the the chancellor's ear, if you will, and, you know, how long it's going to take for us to send a negotiation or, uh, yeah. you know, send to see, you know, what's going on in Naboo is actually going on, and, you know, by that time where people will be dead and starved, that sort of stuff. Um, so just the, the way he's very cunning, manipulative, but, but we don't have a lot of him. Like, there's very, yeah. very little of him in the movie itself, you know, and then y- we have the the end sequence, which is kind of dumb. We actually I came in at the end when Ron was finishing it. It was, you know, and and you, Skywalker, will be watching your career with a great interest. Yeah, that's, you know, that was a very corny, poorly written line. Yeah. But it kind of goes back into the, here he is, he's met this character, and that ultimately becomes his right hand. Right. But how we get to that point. So very small segments. He's not in the movie a lot. Very little dialogue. But what he has is so pivotal in creating the character that we see, you know, in the sequels, you know, we are in you know the next two prequels. Yeah. But what we ultimately get in 
Revenge, uh, Return of the Jedi, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Emperor himself and how yeah. cunning he is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the other two, so um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan together, I think if you take them apart, they're both terrible characters in this movie, but the way they piggyback off each other. So, you know, I always viewed Qui-Gon as kind of like the father. Granted, he's the master and, and you know, uh, Obi-Wan's the Padawan, but right. I, I view Qui-Gon more as a father-son character to Obi-Wan. And the, the way they interact, um, you know, Obi-Wan is, is very straight by the books. He does what the Order asks. You know, and, and you don't see a lot of that in the movie. It's a little bit more in the books. And there's actually another book out that I haven't had a chance to read called Master and Apprentice. And it's about Qui-Gon and, yeah. and mm-hmm. Obi-Wan. It's actually before Phantom Menace. But mm-hmm. you know, Obi-Wan is a very strict by the book Jedi, you know, Padawan at this point. He's not even a Jedi, he's just a Padawan. Yeah. Uh, where Qui-Gon is is very he's loose. He's He's not, you know, he's a Jedi, but he could be a, an early generation of what a gray Jedi becomes down the road. Um, you know, he doesn't necessarily believe that the council is right and everything they do is the correct way of doing it. You know, mm-hmm. the being able to bend but not break. You know, he bends their rules but not necessarily breaks their rules, and you know, and just oh, here's the chosen one. I want to train him. Uh, you know, and you know, saying Obi Wan's good on his own, that sort of thing. But it's those two piggybacking off of each other. You know, Obi Wan saying, you know, you could have been on the council by now master if you would just follow what they say but you know Qui-Gon's like you know who's to say that what they're doing is necessarily right so mm-hmm. I think those two characters and granted there are very big important characters in the show or in this movie but they piggyback so well off of each other and developing each other because let's face it the Obi-Wan we see at this point has only been in A New Hope right he wasn't in it much he's an old groggy man that you know help us Obi-Wan you know yeah so and then he sacrifices himself to be with Luke Throughout the rest of that trilogy, you know, we see a ghost in yeah. Empire and Return. Um, so we don't have a lot of Obi Wan development or character built up in the original trilogy. Right. So keep in mind, you know, and yes, we have two and three coming out, but at this moment, only one is out, and so we get how he's very by the books, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing, uh, sort of uh, Padawan. So I don't know. I, I I've always enjoyed you know those three characters, but. Again, the Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are very boring, bad characters without yeah. each other. They complement each other very, very well. And it, it's both they're both very good actors. I think, you know, mm-hmm. considering that they weren't act you know, they were poorly used and again it goes back to the execution of George Lucas, but you know, Qui-Gon to me was kind of the highlight of, you know, he's a great actor, yet he's so bad in this movie acting yeah. and it's not his fault. You know, yeah. it's it's not it's not Ewan McGregor's fault. <sighs> although Ewan McGregor is the standout through all three movies yeah. of the mm-hmm. best actor by far, mm-hmm. uh, especially getting better. He got better as the movies went along, um, where, you know, to me, again, as and, the movies got along, got it got worse. As the character got more developed. Correct. Mm-hmm. As the character was given more to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I, I figured when you, and I agree with what you said about Obi-Wan and uh, Qui-Gon, where separately, like, they're not well-developed characters, but that dynamic together... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that works. That works. They strengthen each other together than they are separate. I I do think so. Um, I I figured when you, I figured when you were talking about uh two two characters that work together, I I figured when the pod race announcers. Well, <laughs> good lord. Uh, I, honestly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. My 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 idiot mind went there. I was like, oh my, is he gonna seriously talk about that? No, God no. Although I I love Greg Krupp. He's one of the 
Padres announcer from Whose Line Is It Anyway, yeah. anyway and he is hilarious. No, when you were talking about uh, two characters that work together, and the first person you brought up was Palpatine, I thought you were going to go with Palpatine and Darth Vader. Yeah. The actual fan menace of the title. Right. Like, and and the fact of the matter is, it's like that, I didn't even think about Palpatine in this this movie, because, I mean, we, we learn more as we get further and further into the prequel, sort of same with Obi-Wan, uh, we learn a bit more about who they are, who who he is, and at the more he's given to do, we understand his who what makes him tick a lot more. But yeah, we we do actually. Palpatine is somebody who is reasonably developed in in his few scenes in uh, Fan Mess. My my choice is isn't it's. My two choices actually are the two most controversial performances in the entire movie. Oh, here we go. Uh, Anakin, who I think we, as bad as Jake Lloyd is throughout most of this movie, I feel like as a character is probably the one of the most developed as an individual character in the movie by George Lucas. Because that first scene, yes, it is cringeworthy. When he asks Padme, are you an alien? It is cringeworthy. <laughs> Every yippee and oop and all of that that comes out of his mouth. But we understand the type of person that he is. And we understand the type of kid that he is. And the fact that he does want to help these people, even though they're complete strangers. And, like, you, you start to see the seeds of who Anakin Skywalker is before you start to see the downfall. And, you know, so it's very, it's just, that might be some of the strongest bit of writing in the entire movie from Lucas because of the fact that it's like, well, Anakin's obviously the main character of this six-film arc, he knows what he wants to project with Anakin. He just doesn't know how to get that out. He just doesn't know how to get that consistently on a regular basis out of the actor he's chosen to play Anakin. Um, and the other one is actually Jar Jar. Uh, Ahmed Best. And it's like, I'm not a fan of the choices made when it comes to developing the character as far or developing the Gungans in terms of the way they speak, in terms of the way they move. Mm-hmm. But Ahmed Best does a fantastic job of doing what George Lucas wanted them to do. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I said this before and um, you know, this is this was a controversial thing when um, we were doing our commentary, I think. That you you and you and Dan, okay I had always said I I always in concept yes I thought the Gungans were always were yes. were pretty cool yes. were were a neat concept yes you know in terms of like you know a race you know and like and you can you can see that there was a lot of thought put into their culture right and all that and um again I, but again it's all, again and we're going back to that word we keep using over it's all in execution and it's yes. like it's all in the writing and and that's the thing is like um. There's a really interesting video on YouTube of 
Is it Brian Bledsoe who voiced Boss Nass? Yes. And yeah, and he there's an interview of him on YouTube. You can go looking for it of him talking about how he developed Boss Nass with with Lucas and how he was like and he was like looking he he was actually somebody he was actually somebody else who had the the balls to speak up and say like there's there's some I'm I'm having some issues with this like you know like and he said and he's and he looked at like a lot of Jar Jar's dialogue and he was like he's like there there's some I I don't I'm not I'm not comfortable with this as a as an actor as a character you know as a, I'm trying to he was, like he was like George I'm trying to develop a character with you here right. you know and like so on and so forth and like you can listen to him talking about how he developed Boss Nass with 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 Lucas like right. and, and how he made like you know he's like like he like he addressed the he addressed the he addressed the problematic dialogue he addressed the the dialogue that like is kind of, it's mm-hmm. child for lack of a better it's childish it's kind of yeah. it's you know and it's and it's a little a little racist yeah. you know um <laughs> so you know and he addressed all the in in the in the video you you hear him talking about like he addressed these things with Lucas he's like I need to be say, I need to be saying words. You know, I get with I get that you want this to be an alien exotic creature character, right. but I need to be using words that still resonate with you know a, a regular audience. I, like I need to be like saying maybe we saw start being friends. You know, something like yeah. he's like, like I need to be using words that that resonate with an audience. You know, that like people are gonna understand that people are gonna like you know, and that's why. Kind of why Boss Ness is a, actually a, pro, yeah. a better character than Jarger, you know. Like, yeah. I, I just think that's I, th- I thought that was really interesting when I found that video. I think I, I think I shared it on Facebook. And I tagged you guys, but nobody ever. Yeah, we never really discussed it or anything like that. No, we haven't. But um, but yeah, go looking for it. It's a really interesting. Yeah. It's a really interesting little piece of slice of nugget of uh, you know, making of this movie mm-hmm. that wasn't addressed when the movie first came out. Again, that documentary. Well, well, the the documentary again. The documentary is all is very kind of like you know. Again, it's 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 George Lucas being surrounded by yes, man. It's 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 kind of like it's kind of like yeah, we're making a start, you know. And it's it wasn't until years, 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 years and years later that people started discussing, you know, again, some some of the some of the issues that actually happen, you know, behind the scenes. Actually, and I disagree with that. There were people who brought up the issues of. Well, yeah, again, like... Especially with Jar Jar being sort of the step-and-fetch-it, stereotypical, you know, sort of almost like a minstrel show. Mm -hmm. And that type of characterization of the character. And then you have the Trade Federation, who's very obviously, you know, very clearly Asian accent. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we talked about this a little bit on the commentary that we did um, at the time, and it's it is one. I yeah, I didn't. I don't remember ever watching that video of Brian Blessed talking about boss mass. It does make me want to see that. You should. Well. You should. Um, and the thing is, it's like I feel like so much of I. It didn't occur to me until Ahmed Best started talking about the vitriol that. All the backlash, made. yeah. That I mean, basically, almost drove him to suicide. Yeah, like, and you know, it drove Jake Lloyd out of the business entirely. Oh God, yeah. That and that's uh, like, that is so that, sad. That type of, and 
I mean, that type of, and it's like this, the the toxicity of Star Wars, of really any fandom. I mean, they're fan, all all fandoms basically face this now. But I mean, Star Wars, it feels like it's a little bit more pronounced. You know that you know drives somebody like Kelly Marie Tran off of social media. Mm-hmm. It drives Daisy Ridley off of social media, and it's like for these specific reasons that people dislike their their yeah it's not Kelly Marie it's not Kelly Marie's it's not Kelly Marie Tran's fault that Rose character sucks it's not her fault it's but but the fact of the matter is it's like there's so much but there's so many there's it's not just about the fact that people dislike her character though mm. it's the fact that people are bringing out really toxic and even racial mm-hmm. hatred towards her and like Ahmed Best, it's like people blamed him for Jar Jar, and it's like it you were just doing you know you were just doing what George asked you to yeah. do, and oh you know your credit it's like you actually did it really the way you performed did physically is fantastic. It, I mean the the physical performance that he brings to Jar Jar, it's like you know Andy Serkis is basically the crown prince of performance capture. Ahmed Best predated him mm-hmm. as Jar Jar in terms of performance capture. Now it was perfected by what Peter Jackson and them did on the Lord of the Rings trilogy with Gollum. the way they did performance capture. Mm-hmm. I mean basically what Ahmed Best was doing was he the way they did performance capture was he was basically he he was basically <laughs> the inspiration for the digital animator for the way they did the character because I mean all three of us have seen the suit that Jar Jar that Ahmed Best wears where it's mm. like it's not a performance capture suit the way we think it is yeah it's it's basically a point of reference suit where his performance is the reference for the digital the animators mm-hmm. and the CG artists to create that performance. Yeah, and I, I loved I loved when um, uh, Brian I know Brian watched the uh, the episode one panel from Celebration this year. Yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if you caught saw Daniel. Well, same thing with the the Rise of Skywalker. So you're talking about you know Ahmed Best comes out and he gets a huge standing ovation exactly. longer than any of the others. And same thing with Rise of Skywalker. Kelly Tran had the largest standing ovation out yeah. of the, the entire mm-hmm. Rise of Skywalker. Even when Lando came out, he probably had the next <laughs> biggest. But Kelly Marie. Yeah. So it's one of those. Yeah, the fandom is is very toxic in any fandom. Um, I think part of it is so social media is so much different now than social media. So social media yeah. when Phantom Menace was there was MySpace, right? I mean, I, I think I MySpace, mean, I don't know. There wasn't a lot of social was, media per se. It was early the, form. It was basically just web pages and message boards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. Basically and was. chat rooms and chat rooms. Back, yeah, yeah, I mean, and Facebook was, or MySpace and was Facebook. It, yeah, was it was actually, a, yeah. I mean, this was this was um, AOL, so, yeah, right? Yeah, this, I mean, these are, yeah, I mean, this was message boards. Yeah, so it's like message boards and chat rooms. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's you know the toxicity is a lot worse now. You know, and so much more instant now. Yeah. That's that's yeah. that's another yeah. scary thing. The other thing too is I don't know. You know, a lot of times we sit here and say the fans hate it, the fans hate it, but like I'm surrounded with people. You know, yeah, Ronnie doesn't like the Last Jedi, but he has some valid points. But I don't know of anybody that like is a Star Wars fan that truly, truly, truly hated it. You know, there's yeah. points and moments you didn't like. 
I think the people that didn't like it are just the standard moviegoers that are just going to be entertained, and they weren't fulfilled. Their entertainment was not satisfied, and they're the ones that I think they do more complaining, more so than the Star Wars fans or the Star Trek fans well, or the Harry the Potter fans. Is, it's so. like I, I feel like so many of the people who do some of the loudest complaining about Star Wars and especially the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy are, you know, people from Ron and mine's generation of original, you know, Star Wars, original generation Star Wars fans where we had very particular ideas in our head of how the prequels and how the sequels should go. And when they didn't live up to those expectations, they got pissy about it. They got overly pissy about it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, as opposed to adapting it, adapting and kind of, even if they don't, like Ron, I mean, we give you a lot of crap for your dislike of The Last Jedi, but ultimately, like Daniel said, we both understand what you don't like about it, and it's perfectly valid criticisms of a film. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh my god, he, oh my god, he ruined my childhood. Like the fan menace and the prequel trilogies were the whole, you know, you ruined my childhood mm-hmm. generation started, and it's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like. This is the most juvenile and people saying George Lucas wrote my childhood. It's like, first of all, you're insensitive as fuck if that's the way you're going to put it. Secondly, it's mm-hmm. like, no, he didn't. You can still watch those original movies if you want. Well, more or less. Yeah. Um, we're God. not going to go into that. No, we uh, were not. No, we. <laughs> let's not. Let's, special let's not. Let's not. Let's not. We're not going to go into <laughs> No. But. <laughs> I will admit, like, when we watched the trilogy, because I, I still don't have the Blu-rays, but when um, when we watched that, I'll admit it's like, it it still wasn't great, but wasn't quite as bad as I expected that to be. <laughs> it's still not good, It's but it's not as cringeworthy as I thought it was going to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, the prequels were... Ground and especially the fan mess were ground zero for the worst of Star Wars. Now it's like the people who go to Star Wars celebrations, they're I, I feel like they're like they're representative of the best of Star Wars fans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like even if they don't necessarily love everything about Star Wars, they want to celebrate Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. It's like that's what they, it doesn't matter if they like everything about it, it's like they just want to celebrate this thing they they love. Yeah. Amen. And yeah. so, sure. good point. You know, and so it's not surprising to me that Ahmed Best gets a, a standing ovation, especially given how honest and just how passionate he still remains about that character. And the fact of the matter is, there are still a lot of fans of that character, you know, when from when they were kids. It's like they may not necessarily, and they didn't necessarily know at the time the issues that other people would have with that character. Yeah. It's like, they saw him, that was, you know, it's a goofy character. It's like, it does point, Jar Jar does point to, one of the things I was talking about earlier when we were, I was going to talk about earlier when we debated whether it was a kid's movie or not, it's like, 
the fundamental problem with Jar Jar, one of the fundamental problems with Jar Jar, other than the voice and all that, is the fact that it's a per, it's a particularly juvenile brand of humor mm-hmm. that Jar Jar is involved in. And it's like, there's humor in the original trilogy. C-3PO and R2-D2 are a great example. Mm-hmm. But it's not as juvenile, stupid kid humor as what Jar Jar is mm-hmm. and what Jar Jar represents. And that's my biggest and that's one of my biggest problems with the character is that he's supposed it's it's forced humor and it's not particularly funny humor yeah. because yeah. it's like oh I stepped in doo doo it's like <laughs> yeah. oh god they're killing me well and we we Brian and I've both talked you know the Clone Wars does Jar Jar a huge favor and make yeah. him a better character so you have Jar Jar of you know uh, you know Phantom Menace Attack of Clones what little he's in there and then revenge of the sith but then you have the jar jar that's in you know the clone wars who is not a different character he's still the same character but he's a well better developed character and he has better he's better used uh, you know by you know dave filoni and george Lucas do a better job of using this character and and kind of redeeming it if you will part of it is not only filoni being the big point man there but also the fact that it's those other voices coming in, the different writers who are going to have their own ideas on mm. how Jar Jar should be represented, the mm. way he should be written. And it's like that's in all of those imposters. Like, I do feel like with the Clone Wars, the Clone Wars is the best, the Clone Wars series is the best thing that came out of the prequels. Yeah, I agree. The prequel era. It mm. really is because it, it, feels more like the Star Wars that we grew up with. I mean, it, it took a little bit to get going, but it gr- feels like the Star Wars that we grew up with. But in, for kids, you know, really designed for kids, for kids. But also just that adventure while also deepening a lot of the mysteries of the Force and with some really audacious ideas. Mm-hmm. Like their their arcs of of Jedi, their Jedi arcs in that print in that series that are just out there, completely out there. Um, mm-hmm. And the same thing with Rebels was the same way when when after uh, Disney took over, it was the same thing. Like it was it was basically different film different filmmakers, different artists bringing their own sensibilities to this franchise and it's like that's the big thing that that is that's ultimately the biggest thing that holds the prequels back and it's like it it makes you wonder what because ron howard was one of the people that george lucas talked to about directing phantom menace what if he had said yes you know I think we would have gotten a better... I think the performances certainly would have been better. Ron Howard is a really good director of actors. I I think, you know, maybe the writing still wouldn't have been too great, but maybe he could have gotten George to bring somebody else in to write, co-write the script. You know, I I was thinking about this more this evening, sort of watching what he did of Phantom Menace. It's like, what if... What if he had offered it to Coppola? 
What if he had offered the prequels to Kofi? <laughs> and it's like, if you think about the Godfather trilogy, it wouldn't be an out there idea. And like, they both have been proponents of technology in movies for many, for ever since they've known each other. And by that point, Coppola was, you know, Coppola has, was about to, Coppola wasn't really making films at that point. So it's like, he, he could have done some interesting things with the political parts of this movie. He probably wouldn't have made as, the, the, the humor in this movie wouldn't have been as juvenile. Maybe he could have gotten something out of these actors that, you know, Coppola or Lucas just was not really able to do. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think of what could have been with the prequels, but you get an idea with the Clone Wars of what could have been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if other voices had been brought in. And I, one of the biggest problems with Lucas um, as as much as I'm appreciative of him for creating Star Wars and the universe that Star Wars exhibits, you know, he the fact that he felt like he had to do it all by himself with the prequels. I kind of understand why. I mean, he's kind of said why because of the fact that it's like he he had his own very strong ideas as far as the visual effects and what he wanted to do as far as that, but if if he had been able to just relinquish a little bit of control, you know, to different filmmakers. And it's like, I mean, he had Spielberg in helping with pre-visualization of sequences in Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, those are some of the best sequences in Revenge of the Sith. And, um... Yeah, I mean, they're God. We're we we've talked a lot about this movie. We haven't even touched on. I think we may. I think we touched on some interesting yeah. part, parts, though. I yeah. think, like you know, I and, think it's. I think it's overall, is, it's been a. It's really been an interesting discussion. I think. And so. and the thing is, it's like there's so much to talk about fan mess, and it's like it's a movie that. It's a movie that represents. It it does represent a very particular. I mean, one of the most interesting things. It's. It's as it's fundamentally a generic Hollywood blockbuster when you boil it down in a lot of ways. It's also as audacious and uh, expanding of the art form as something like The Matrix or something like Fight Club or The Blair Witch Project or some of these other movies in 1999 where they they take chances and they don't really they also don't really care what you think about them it's like this is the movie that i made you know you you may like some things about it you may not like other things about it, but it's like this is the way i made it and you know george lucas for all of his faults as a filmmaker is a filmmaker who is he, he is a substantial filmmaker, regardless of how good some of his movies are. And that's that's just the bottom line. I mean, are any of the prequels as good as THX 1138 or American Graffiti or New Hope? No. Not by a long shot. But there's still the... There, 
you can still tell the same voice is throughout all of those movies. And it's just, it took a while, it took a little too long with the prequels, I think, for Lucas to find that voice again of what made those first three films so special and entertaining in order to bring the, that to his later roles. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we've touched on a lot. I mean, we didn't, we didn't even really mention Natalie Portman as uh, Padme. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned you and McGregor and yeah, he, he definitely got better as the franchise got long. Um, we, you know, it's like there there are so many other things we could talk Nellie about. Nellie Portman never seemed like she was invested in that character at all. I don't think throughout the whole trilogy, that's the thing. I mean Yeah, I mean I for a while I thought she was good in it, but it's like, yeah, you can you can tell that she's not too terribly invested. You're right. Um, I mean I think she again, she's an actor who's doing the best she can with material that is just not really playing to her strengths. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of see that in the Thor movies, too. Yeah. Where it's like, I mean, I think she's a little bit more natural in both. Yeah. But, and especially the first one, but... I thought she was a little bit, but I thought, I thought, let's think, like, dark, again, we're, we're, I thought Dark World was better just because it's just, I, I don't know, just... Yeah, see, Dark World didn't really hold up for me. That's I. I think Dark. I think that's thing. Like, is is it a great movie? No, but it's it does it. I think it holds up a little bit better than the first Thor. That's but you know we're getting off track. Yeah, we're getting off track. But, I, I think um, I think it's interesting. So Kira Knightley was the the uh, the the backup. Yeah, Kira Knightley played uh, Sabe, who was the decoy. They're actually all. Uh, there's a book called Queen of Shadows, which is fantastic. It talks about all the handmaidens, and they're all decoys, and they all have a particular role in how they. Uh, dress up Queen Amidala, whether it's the decoy version or not, and how they all interact. They all have the same attitude, personality, yeah. speech. And then the reason they wear so much makeup is to hide who it actually is. Right. But I actually find it funny that, you know, Natalie Portman was the main character in Padme, but I, f- I felt like Kira Knightley actually could have done a better job. And the Kira Knightley we have in the few moments of her actually being dressed up as, uh, as the decoy, you know, yeah. Padme, uh, Queen Amidala aspect. I felt she like she was a better actor for the role. I felt like she could have done better. Mm-hmm. There's there are way better actresses that could have been out there and could have been utilized, but specifically that those two were cast. Yeah. Uh, because they were bigger names at the time. You know, they, no, they yeah, let's think like credits, but, was not. Oh uh, well, yeah, like, Kira, Kira that, yeah, didn't yeah. become a big name until Pirates of the Caribbean. It's true. But, but no, that's thing. Natalie Portman was the the was kind of like the she was the big young actress at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that she was she was she was a name. Like she'd already, yeah. she had, she had recognition. She'd been, she'd been in a few pretty big movies or bigger movies. Mm-hmm. But I, she had worked with Woody Allen and a bunch of other actors, mm-hmm. directors at the time. Yeah, but I just always thought it'd, it'd be kind of interesting. Like, how would the, how would that character have developed over the the trilogy yeah. if it was Kira Knightley as the main role versus Natalie Portman? It's, mm-hmm. I felt like we would have gotten a better character, better. You know, obviously the acting did get better, yeah. even from Natalie Portman. I felt like she did get better as the trilogy went on, but. Yeah. I don't think her hers didn't improve enough that her character and the acting was that's, a good that's choice. Actually inter- yeah. That's actually interesting. And it's like, I do think to a certain extent she probably would have been better. And I think part of it is because of the fact that she's so well suited for period movies. Like she's like here nightly. 
some of the most substantial movies he's done has been period movies, whether it's like Pride and Prejudice or Conan or other movies. So it's like she's more suited for that type of thing. Natalie Portman really isn't. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that that might be part of the reason why Natalie Portman is just, she doesn't, like, she's not quite as natural in that. Because you're right, actually, thinking about it, it's like, yeah, Kira Knightley in that role, when you do see her as the queen, it's like she does project a little bit more of that type of character than Natalie Portman does. And it's like Natalie Portman, and it's funny, Natalie Portman is so recognizable, I can't get over on the riff tracks for her. It's like, she's the queen, guys. She's <laughs> she's the queen. Like, it's obvious. She's the queen. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but this, no, this, I agree. This was a, this was a really good conversation. Um, I'll, 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 I'll close up and, uh, leave it to you guys. If you, ha- you guys have anything more you want to add before we, uh, sign off here. I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, like I, it's been, it's been, it's been neat to listen to you guys and your your I mean I, I actually real I actually do and I give Daniel a hard time for being you know, such a bookworm but at the, but at the same time I really do appreciate where he's coming from from you know mm-hmm. f- with with his with his point of view ha- being being as well read with with the expanded universe as he is because he does he does offer a because uh, that's the thing, like you and Brian, you and I, Brian, are, we're not, we're we're not, we're not invested in, in the in the aspects of the books yeah. as much, uh, if at all. Um, so it's always neat to listen to what Daniel has to say and what he, the point of view he brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as you know, someone who's invested in the books. Um, and uh, I thought I just thought you, Brian, actually brought up some really interesting points, and it's always, I you know, it's always. Uh, interesting to hear what you have to say um and again i'm just i'm just over here just i'm more or less just kind of like soaking in a lot of what you guys have to say mm-hmm. i'm not sure i've had a lot i've had a lot to bring to the table as far as like what's new or what's interesting but um it's it's just been this has been fun to discuss this with it's been fun to discuss stars with you guys to the extent we have yeah over the last couple of years it's been it's been a lot of fun to like you know bring daniel into the mix and like mm-hmm. you know even you know, even when we're even when we get we get we we, it, we get into these text meme wars <laughs> on our phones. Yeah, that that's been my favorite part. Has been getting yeah. into the me, the meme wars <laughs> with you guys, of like you know yeah. But when I I think I think the most fascinating thing about this for me, Ron, and I mean I was this was originally going to be Daniel and I, but it but Ron really wanted to be in this and. The more I thought about it, the more it's like, yeah, he really does need to be in this. Um, and but the wait, you were I, considering doing this without me, Brian? When was this? Do you never? It's 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 over and done. Has been. We're, this has been. Here. You're here. I'm you're, sorry. I'm, I'm. You got airtime. Your name's. I don't know how to feel here. about this, Brian. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you should be. But but the fact of the matter is, it's like it. What's what's interesting for me, especially since of the fact that. We've been talking about these movies since 2003. Because mm-hmm. we did our commentaries for the particular string in 2003. And so hearing us 
you know, the the I know for me, my opinion of Stan Mess has changed kind of drastically. I mean, I I still I still kind of feel like I have some of the same feelings about the movie that I've always had, but just the way I weigh things is considerably different. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we can continue this discussion, there's still so much to talk about and so much that can be added to this discussion is is fascinating. And it's like it, you know, I'm I'm glad that we continue this, and I'm glad that we have. Uh, Daniel that we can also bring into this conversation and add his perspective to mm-hmm. it. In because I mean I I've been talking about you, I've talked been talking about Star Wars with you for almost twenty years now, mm-hmm. and so it's like to bring somebody else in who's as big a fan, if if not more of a fan of this. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure Daniel's the biggest fan of the on I'm, basis of the fact that he's more of the books and yeah the the. The, uh, oh my god! Well, that's the thing. Daniel's Daniel's extent of the knowledge and the yeah. of the lore. It just it 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 really it's it really it really does it really is kind of impressive yeah. in its own way. And I was like, I I do I do kind of think Daniel's probably the biggest fan in this room. Oh yeah, I'm yeah, pretty sure. So I might have a lot of knowledge, but I still never won Star Wars trivia in a group environment. Like I've won the <laughs> Trivial Pursuit all day every day, but. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's nerds out there bigger than I am too. Yeah, so. I, I remember yeah. that one night Star Wars tri- trivia we did a few years yeah, ago. At Battle and Brew. Battle and Brew. Yeah. Oh, on Star Wars Day. Yeah. Star Wars Day. And yeah, we That's we brutal. we had we had a rough time. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed my alcoholic blue milk, but that was about that was yeah. that's all that's all I remember. <laughs> Uh, the only thing that I, I would leave on is is uh, just a small tidbit of an actor that was like uh, not we didn't talk about yet and don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, Ray Park as Darth Maul was oh, yeah. kind of like the the Han, uh, Harrison Ford Han Solo where they weren't cast. Uh, Ray Park was just a stunt double or, or yeah. stunt not not stunt double. He was actually a a, a stunt. Uh, I forgot what they used him for, but he was just providing stunts that for the original actor that was cast. To do, but he did such a better job and was so natural and fluent that mm-hmm. they aired him. Kind of same thing with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford wasn't supposed to get anything. You yeah, know, he was he, just the, he was just doing. He was doing. He was doing line, reading yeah. line readings, and actually, he <laughs> did some of the building, as I recall, because uh, he was a carpenter. Time, I think he yeah. did some of the set buildings. And but anyway, just just an actor that very little airtime. You know, you know, and another character. You know, a Darth Maul had very little movie screen time. That was like by all fans, even still today is is next to Darth Vader probably the most loved and unique uh, Sith Lord that we got that we don't know anything about, you know, or, or very yeah. little about in terms of the movie. Obviously, comics, books, tons of knowledge, that Clone sort of War. stuff, and Clone Wars, and, and Rebels, and, you know, Solo. But he, his character, I mean, look at this one character he had. I think it was less than uh, a minute of total airtime in Phantom Menace. But look at the character they did. Well, speak. Well, he had he had, he had one he had one he had one line. Yeah, in the fight scenes. Yeah. 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 One line. Have revenge. And but look at the character they developed because of it. Because the fans yeah. loved him and they killed him too quickly. Boom! Here he is again. So yeah. But that's that's all I was gonna just you know. I, I no, when we were watching out. the movie earlier and like and Obi Wan kills Darth Maul. Well, we'll never see him again. Yeah. No, so. Ray. I I remember like I and Ray Park was on. Yeah, he was he was on the 20th anniversary panel as well mm-hmm. in Star Wars yeah. Celebration. Yep. Um, but we we saw him at a celebration a couple of years ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was 
that was where we saw Ian McDermott there too. Yeah, Ian McDermott. Uh, yeah, that was that was fantastic. So, um, no, and and yeah, I mean th- this is this is there's always going to be so much to talk about when it comes to the fan match. I mean, there's so much that I'm leave. I took notes on that. I'm leaving on the table. Like we haven't talked about some of the other ideas there, but. I'm not even going to bring I was going to say, make, sh- make sure to bring up our commentary as a companion piece oh, yeah. to this. And, I mean, it's going to be linked to. But, yeah, I mean, the, the commentary that Ron, Dave, and I did for all of the prequels, and as well as A New Hope, are uh, available on Sonic Cinema, and uh, you'll be able to listen to it there. I'll link to it uh, when I post this. And um, I definitely hope you check that out. I mean, it just plays like a normal commentary or you can listen to it individually you know you're just gonna have a lot of uh pauses there but um yeah so uh thank you to daniel green and ryan haynes for joining me tonight to talk about the fan menace and uh continue the discussion of the class of 1999 with me um hit me up on patreon.com backslash sonic cinema for more and uh, check out the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube page for more, including our discussions on The Last Jedi and Star Wars in general. And for now, this is uh, Brian Scuttle uh, for Sonic Cinema and the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>